This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, Krista Tippett, author and creator of the On Being podcast, is joined in conversation by author Laurel Breitman to explore the art and mystery of living. This event was recorded on March 1st, 2019 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. And that's also where you can find out more about us, including how to sponsor future episodes of the show. because we can't see any of you I guys. know. <laughs> I want to see you. Thank you so I can much. I you. Um, <laughs> I want to start just by thanking you. I think probably all of us are here because we are fans. And for you, yeah. It's true. It's also probably really hard to receive, and it's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, well, in radio, I'm in a dark room, right, <laughs> behind the microphone. I know. I think a lot of us Lovely. who go often into media, you know, we do it because we get to be Being behind really the curtain. Shy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for me, though, you know, you, you really you're the most amazing spiritual place in my very secular life. And I don't know if this is true for others here, but I really feel like, you know, I'll be in the car, like on the 880 in traffic, or I'm on a road trip and I'm like, I have ketchup from In-N-Out spilled all over my lap. And I turn on the podcast and before I know it, I'm having a complete and total spiritual experience, (laughs) crying in traffic uh, or in the In-N-Out line. Mm. And I... (laughs) I think that there is something absolutely profound and magical about that, where you have really taken these moments in in culture and you're inside of our ears, um, just filling us with wisdom. Mm-hmm. So I hope tonight we can get to some of that uh, wisdom. And I want to start how you do, um, with the question that you ask everyone that you sit down with first. <laughs> um, was there a spiritual or religious background to your childhood? Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, there was, and what's interesting about that question is that I think the answer anybody would give on any given day would be that it, that it shifts. So kind of what you see when you look back looking for that. I mean, the, so kind of the linear answer is, um, that my grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. So, and I went to church three times a week. So I grew up in a really immersive, um, religious culture and family. Um, But when I look back at that now, I think about um, the contradictions in my grandfather. Um, He was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And basically, I mean, well, for one thing, church and religion was family and community. So there was a sense in which it really wasn't about doctrine or, or theology. Um, but there was a sense in which it was all about a list of rules and basically about all the things you could do wrong and probably were already doing wrong, whether you knew it or not. And most of them were connected to having sex. (laughs) 
Like sometimes everything was a slippery slope to having sex. Um, so so I, I, I got a lot of rules through, through my grandfather. But at the same time, and also heaven was so small. I mean, only Southern Baptists were going there. Wow. <laughs> I, like, Methodists didn't have a chance. I'm not making this up. But then, okay, but then my grandfather, um, first of all, he had a second grade education. And I think he had a big, beautiful mind. I mean, I know he did. But he, I think he was frightened of the vastness of his mind and the questions it asked. And he'd never been invited to, um, to have his questions be part of his experience of faith. And... And, and so, he, so the life of the mind was kind of off to the side. At the same time, he was very passionate. And so he could be so stern in the pulpit. But as a human being, he was, he was probably the funniest person in my family. He was the person who knew how to laugh the best and really cared about my, making other people laugh. And so I think I was aware of all this, how big his mind was, how small the doctrine was, how scared he was of the body, but how passionate a human being he was. And I think that all of that, all of it, and just the contradiction, the just juxtaposition of things that, that couldn't add up, um, flowed into my sense of, you know, what, who, who God might be. And also maybe what we can learn from people. I mean, he sounds like someone yeah. who actually would have been on the podcast. Um, well, I kind of think I do, I do the podcast for him. I, I, and I, I, always think, I think a lot about the you know, reason I do as scientists, I think I do for my grandfather. Because he would not have known that it would be possible to ask those questions or to be so, um, you know, to have mystery presented to you in such a different way, um, through such a different lens. But I, I think it's the same mystery. And I don't, you know, you can't, you can't pin it down. I went, you know, to graduate school at MIT and thought, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist. And I thought the further I got in the study of the sciences, you know, the smaller my forms of knowing would become. And that, like, what I knew about the world would winnow and winnow and winnow to a finer place of yeah, knowledge. No. And as soon as I got to MIT, I was like, oh, my God, people are so weird here. Everyone was, like, deeply spiritual. Everyone was inventing things. It was the complete opposite. Yeah. And I actually found mystery there. And I found belief. And I found way more spirituality there than I ever thought I would before. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I find really interesting about your work, which is that you approach spirituality and mystery with a kind of rigor that sometimes in Northern California, you know, we're a little woo here, um, for lack of a better term. You said that. I didn't. <laughs> no, I, I uh, embrace it. Um, <laughs> but I, that's something that I feel like you... There's so much talk about wellness now, right, mm -hmm. which we don't even... It's become, I think, a meaningless word in a lot of ways. And I think your work is so, so intellectually rigorous and important. And you are the f one of the few places, honestly, in my phone and in my digital life that doesn't pay make me pay less attention to other things. You actually help me pay more attention. Somehow looking in my phone uh, to find <laughs> you teaches me something. And I wonder, you know, is that, 
is that a really specific aim of the of your work? Like when you started the radio show, did you really feel like, okay, we're going to get to knowledge um, in a very specific way, or were you always thinking about, okay, I'm going to lay out I'm going to lay out humanity's mysteries, and I'm going to go one person at a time? Yeah, no, well, well, actually, so this is also what's interesting about the spiritual background of your childhood question, because so many things end up circling back to it. So actually, my answer to this circles back to that, because. Because I then had this very um, traditional trajectory where I was very religious. And then at 18, I went to college and completely left it behind. And, um, and, and I didn't think about it again for years. Went in, in a very political direction. Um, ended up in divided Berlin. Um, in Germany, where I, I, I was absolutely fluent in German and... And never had a conversation about religion. So I could talk, I could speak fluently in German about nuclear arms and the Cold War with, uh, you know, with the most senior people in those fields. But when I eventually went back there to tell my friends that I was going to divinity school, I, I, I did not have words. Uh-huh. I had not learned that vocabulary. So, so that's who I was. And when I started... Uh, thinking, I don't know, honestly kind of walking into spiritual experience again without meaning to and was kind of surprised by it um, and started thinking about religion as this place in the human enterprise where we ask a certain set of really important questions that are not being asked in politics and economics. Um, and that are very serious questions, although we act like the serious questions are in politics and economics. So, but, but I was surprised that I was exploring this place in myself, that I was starting to look for it in the world and take it seriously in the world. And partly because of where I came from, I had to know that I could bring the life of the mind into having a spiritual life. And so that's why I went to divinity school and never planning to be ordained, um, but wanting to study theology because saying, you know, this is this place where across time and generations, um, these questions have been pursued, rituals have been developed, uh, there are texts and traditions and teachings and theology, um, and so I, wa- I, wanted to, I wanted to see, I wanted to actually test if this is as important and big and relevant as I was beginning to suspect that it was. And it, and it was. So when I came out of that, um, one of the experiences I had is, well, first of all, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. It was a m- very useless degree <laughs> if, you didn't, if you didn't get ordained. Um, Turns out it's perfect for your job now. Perfect. <laughs> right. But I had no idea. What I did, so this was the mid-90s, late-90s, was a really toxic, believe it or not, toxic moment in American life. Um, in that particular toxic moment, um, religious voices were playing a big role. And also our fellow journalists handing the microphone and putting the camera in front of those most strident, toxic voices. Um, and so I just started longing for a place where we could talk about this. And it's hard. It is hard. It's not easy to talk about it head on. But also I felt like you should not have to, 
give up three years of your life and go into the kind of debt I had gone into to be introduced to this part, you know, to this intellectual, because it is an intellectual tradition as much as it is a spiritual tradition. Um, and I fell in love with that. And so like, so that is what I've been tracing, but also how it is alive um, in 21st century pursuits and lives without, without even necessarily naming itself as part, as in that lineage. Yeah, I I think that's fascinating. I'm really curious about any overlaps that you see in your past and contemporary life as a journalist and also your divinity training. Between journalism and divinity school? Yeah. Well, I insist that what we're doing with On Being is journalism. Yeah. And I don't think I'll... You know, I I mean, in fact, there are a, a good friends who are in journalism who see it that way. Um, I, I think that like all of our institutions right now, really all of our institutions are in crisis and in flux. And some of that is about things going terribly wrong. And some of it is about this moment we inhabit and our world in which technology has bound us together um, so that the forms that came out of the 20th century don't work. They don't work for who we are and how we live and the challenges in front of us. A lot of the talk about journalism's um, tumult is about the business model problem, and that's real. But I think... The existential crisis for journalism, which is also an existential crisis for all of us, is that it is so sophisticated at analyzing and investigating and shining a light on what is catastrophic, corrupt, and failing, and not sophisticated about analyzing, investigating, and shining a light on our capacity for goodness and beauty. Um, And the ways in which we are actually getting smarter about those things. That's also news. I think that's true. And I would never say that there is a silver lining to all of the catastrophic weather events that we're having. But um, there is... A moment in the wake of those things. My family lost our house in the Thomas fire. A good friend, just his house just got flooded up on the Russian River, and just sent out an email today, getting all of everyone in our friend group to show up with boots tomorrow morning. You know, to go. And Rebecca Solnit has written a lot about this, which is yes. You know, in the wake of disaster, actually, is so much beauty, and that we should not be afraid of the darkness. For in the darkness is a place where the future is born. Someone gets to light a candle, and that that's an incredible thing. You know, I, I worry as a writer and as someone who likes to think, you, you had our mutual friend Maria Popova of uh, brainpickings.com on the show. Yeah. Yeah. We love her. Um, 
And she said something that I thought was really profound, I'd love you to talk about, which is that she worries that we're bored of thinking and that the internet has given us a free way to sort of thinking that we can just now know things um, without having to spend the long hours of, of pondering and what happens when we ponder. And her example that she gave you, which I love, which is, you know, why would you spend years of your life looking at art if you can just Google top 10 contemporary works from right. the 20th century, right? 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 Or like top 10 listicle of the most expensive uh, sculptures ever sold. Yeah. Um, and what have we lost? Because I do think there is this thing in this moment, not only is this sensational or is there more um, focus on the bad, but also there's, there's, the stories are shorter. I, talk to us about that. Yeah. Yeah. And this week um, on, the, on the show that just came out is this beautiful conversation I had with Teju Cole. And he has this uh, idea about what we've lost by being able to know everything right away. Like what we've lost by just by having to sit with the fact that we don't know something as opposed to being able to look it up immediately. But of course, when we look it up immediately, yeah, we get this top line explanation. But well, I guess I, I know what Maria is saying and I, and I think it's true. And I also think that brain pickings is a, you know, um, exhibit A, yeah. that that's not the whole story. It's true. Because she writes these lush, long, complex, intellectually uh, provocative uh, pieces and puts them out and millions of people read them online in the digital world. And when I first started this show in public radio, in public radio, I mean, and the only place I could imagine doing it is, was in public radio because um, there's a there are hour-long chunks without commercials, mm -hmm. and um, and there's a you know there's a there's a standard of intelligence and and delving. But what I heard from a lot of experts was you, you, this is t people that it, that it, in fact, fact it was too long form. It was too in-depth that we couldn't just have one conversation for an hour, that it needed to be a magazine because, because attention spans aren't what they used to be. And, you know, people won't listen like this, they said to me. They said, they said, they say, people will actually have to listen to this. <laughs> that was a problem. And people in radio. Um, and I believed then, and I feel vindicated now, that... Even while it's true that all of our attention spans are, are more fragmented than they once were, and we, none of us, including me, do long-form seven days a week, 24 hours a day, it actually makes us understand and appreciate and seek out and carve out time to go deep, to be contemplative. Um, and podcasting and, you know, the listening experiences, of course, you can have non-contemplative listening experiences, but it's easier to do something contemplative with radio, with, which, which has become podcasting as well. Um, so, yeah, so I, I do think, yeah, podcasting is another good example of how because people can, because we have our de mobile devices, which are not all evil, um, we can we can choose when we will go deep and when we will think and thinking is thrilling one of my favorite shows of this last year was the show on hannah arendt did anybody hear that mm. thinking and friendship awesome and that thinking 
uh, it's a terrible thing we've done by kind of turning it into something that only educated people do, right? Or, the, or um, because that's that's not what it is. It's a it's a basic human birthright, right? And it's pleasurable, and it's pleasurable when we do it together. That's true. I mean, one thing I think these devices have done for us is I'm so much less lonely. You know, I didn't used to think as much mm -hmm. when I was folding the laundry, right? But like now you're there. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I do. I think that there is this element and particularly through audio, you yes. know, it's such an intimate yeah, experience, so intimate. you know, yes. Um, yes. meeting your, your podcast and your radio heroes is, is such an incredible thing. You know, you sort of, it's a, uh, I feel like you know me, even though you don't know me that well. I, it's uncomfortable, but we'll get through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, one thing that I think is, you know, the antidote to maybe this question of attention that you do is you release the unedited version. Yes. Yes. Ta ta yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know why. I think that's so fascinating how many people listen to that because there's, it really meanders. And I mean, the thing is, in order to get the that beautiful polished 52 minute thing that we do, um, I have this luxury of being able to talk to people for 90 minutes and I can let them wander and I can let them go down a road that I think maybe I just feel like they have, they need to say this, they need to get it out and I want to let them do that but it's not going to be usable. It's not going to take us anywhere. But I've also learned that that sometimes you are really rewarded by, right, that there really may be something at the end that is a discovery. Um, but God, there's, a, there's quite a bit of drudgery along the way. Or just, I mean, it's, it's actually a true conversation, which is not all exciting, right? When I first started this show, um, I would also have experts, uh, producers, who wanted to, like, pick out the, the high point of the conversation uh -huh. where something, where there was this, you know, I mean, to me, the... The thing that I always hope will happen is that there will be some moment where somebody in conversation, because this can happen in conversation like it can happen in writing, that you can put words around something you didn't know you knew, right? Or you had never put words around it in that way before. So um, sometimes in the early, but, but you have to get there. Right? That's a sacred moment. And then the, by the, the magic of radio is that on the one hand, it's this intimate thing that happens between me and them, although we may not be in the same room. But in the moment of listening, there's this time travel thing, right? So every, it is a communal experience and everybody's in the room with that, with us in the moment that they listen. But to the story I was going to tell is that these producers would, they would want to pluck that out of minute 42 and put it at the top. <laughs> and I would say, you know, a real conversation doesn't work that way. It starts slow. You get to those sacred moments. You can't, you don't begin with them. I love that you include those. Why? I, I guess in some ways to me as a writer, it feels like putting your draft out though. So it also yeah. seems like a brave act. That well, you release the un why did you guys to be honest? To, to be it? honest, I had a colleague, Trent Gillis, who uh, did our? Who created our first website? And he said years ago, he said, "Look, transparency is a value in this world we're moving into. 
and reciprocity. And we, we believe in those things. So we should put our money where our mouth is. He said, so if we really believe in transparency, even while we continue to craft these little works of art and spend an hour when we have, we're 45 seconds over and we can literally spend, you know, two hours finding that 45 seconds, but we're also going to put the whole messy 90 minutes out. And it's amazing how many people listen to that. What percentage of your... I I don't know, but it's... I haven't actually looked at it for a long time, but from the very beginning, it would be hundreds of thousands. I mean, in that early early on when we didn't even have nearly as many podcasting listeners, there would be like 500,000 downloads of the unedited. Do they listen to both? I don't know. Sometimes people do. I think sometimes what people do is they listen uh, to one or the other, and then they enjoy Hmm. hearing what is missing or what was... Yeah. How or how we edited it. Amazing. Do you have a sense when you are interviewing someone that it's going to be like an extremely downloaded or an extremely popular conversation? Do you feel like you have that nose for that? Um, sometimes. But I'm not always right about it anymore. We, the shows with scientists are really, they really do well. I think people are starving for that. That also, the things that are happening... I mean, really, the, the, the story of science in our time and how we are on these frontiers of the cosmos and of our bodies and our brains, I mean, really, that is news, too. And in other places, like in the UK, they actually put things that we discovered today as part of the lead of what happened in the world, but we don't do that. So... I mean, we don't. It's just nuts, right? So you have to read some special publications. Yeah. or um, so, so, and I find, I mean, I think actually, interestingly, I would say in the last few years, um, I'd say the appetite for spiritual and religious themes continues to grow and alongside the appetite for science. Wonderful. Yeah. I love that, what that says about your listeners. I really do. Yeah. I think one thing that your podcast does, which is, excuse me, which the, the whole On Being Project does, um, is show us that we don't have to choose one right. way or the other. Yes. And, and that that itself is We profound. can be whole. Yes. I mean, <laughs> that to me is such a shame of like post-19th century, right? Like we had to choose a lane. Yeah. And the smartest people of our times have never chosen a lane. They've never said, okay, I am a scientist and therefore I am not spiritual. Yeah. Or I'm spiritual or I'm an artist and therefore I'm not a scientist. Mm-hmm. And I think anything that you can do just by virtue of putting all of those same people on the same communications channel is itself radical. Um, I'm curious what you look for in a fantastic conversation. What makes the best possible on being guest? So I always um, I feel like what I'm, what I'm, the line I'm walking with people in a conversation is, and this has been true from the very beginning, is I want, I want to t- speak at the intersection of like, what you know and what you do which is generally what we only talk about, and we lead with that, and who you are and how you live. And also the intersection of the, the convictions and passions that animate you and the questions that animate you, and how all of these things are constantly infusing each other and changing each other. But, but most people, 
walk more comfortably on one side of that line or the other, right? I mean, many, um, well, everybody does. Um, so, so most people are, so, you know, many people are more comfortable with the, what I do and what I know, and other people are more comfortable with the, the more intimate, this is who I am and how I live. And so, so the kind of conversational adventure is to keep walking people back across, back and forth across the line. So, uh, yeah, so I think I said, I think a great conversation is where, where you really get a sense of that dynamic and, and you see how people keep growing because they're investing in both. And then also just kind of what I was describing a minute ago, if you have a moment of revelation, right. And really of personal discovery, um, and we're all in the room. And even just, I mean, another way to say this is just hearing somebody think out loud, which shouldn't be as rare as it is, but just the way culturally we interact in public spaces now and in a lot of media, it actually wouldn't be safe mm-hmm. to, to think out loud. So to create, you know, that space where really interesting people feel free to do that and we're all kind of in it. And then, of course, we start thinking. We start thinking out loud and kind of in communion. Some of my favorite conversations you've had, I actually only remember half because halfway through it started my own thought process. Um, yeah. You know, I think that that's actually a great thing. You know, we well, go yeah. give a talk in public, right? You want people to pay attention the whole time. I actually hope that at some point, at some point in the audience, mm-hmm. the person will have their own epiphany, right? And they'll yes. be looking for the napkin and they'll be like, God, I really want to write a book yes. about that thing. And, you know, yes. that reminds me about this idea I have for something. I actually think that that is a okay if people, so anyway, if you want to check out for a second and come up with a credit. <laughs> um, um, are there things, though, you know, I, I do feel like you make people feel comfortable and safe in order to lead them back and forth over the line. Are there things that you don't ask in service of that? Well, I think you'll find that if if you hear me interview people who you heard interviewed many times before, I probably will not ask them what they always get asked. Um Other topics you stay away from? No, there aren't any general topics I stay away from. But I... I just... Yeah, no, there are no general topics I stay away from. But I'm not there to get them to trip up or to be invasive. I mean, and I'm... And I'm fortunate because I'm... If if you are a breaking news reporter, you don't get to choose who you're interviewing. I mean, I actually only have people on the show who I think have something to say that other people would like to hear mm-hmm. and are leading a life that we'd like to know about. <laughs> and there are examples out there of the opposite. Um, so, yeah, so that's a great privilege. But I will, especially, you know, it's tricky because, um, I mean, I, I think this is one reason I, it, I really love interviewing people who aren't interviewed all the time and who aren't celebrities. And we, we, that's really a core value of finding those people who are 
just below that radar of fame, but really forming lives and practitioners and shaping generations within a particular discipline. Um, don't have any PR, don't have a big social media following. With people who get interviewed a lot or have a certain level of fame or public uh, presence, I actually often have to work really hard, Uh Uh, work harder to get them to not get into groups, which I, I totally appreciate that it's easy for them to get into. Yeah, I think, you know, you you can hear when someone has talking points. Yes. It's such a shame it, because yeah. it's, it's the death of authenticity in yeah. a lot of ways. It's the yeah. death of vulnerability. I, as you say, though, there is plenty of spaces in the culture where it's not safe to not have no, your No, I mean, that, that is the safe way to be. Yeah. Um, but I love that, that you don't let people get away with it in just such a gentle way. Mm-hmm. Um one thing that I really respect that you're up to is teaching other people to how to have as good of conversations as that you're doing on air. And I actually wasn't aware of the Civil Conversation Project um, until I started preparing for this interview, and I'm just so over- overjoyed about it. Oh. If any of you haven't downloaded, um, Krista and her team made an incredible PDF guide to how to have difficult conversations, yeah. um, which I downloaded because I just moved in with my boyfriend, and he has I, That's an excellent use of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's here. The Better Conversations <laughs> Guide. Yes. yes. You can use it for family. You can use it for anything. <laughs> Um, and I, I want to hear you talk about that because I think, you know, what you, you call it the good grounding virtues before ground rules. Yeah. I just love. Will you tell us about the, the, the grounding virtues? virtues? So you have actually, if you've been listening to this show, you have, you, you have, you are aware of the Civil Conversations Project because on one level it's just a body of work within our oh, body of yeah. work. It's the Francis Kissling interview um, I mean, it's so it's so many of them. It's but it's the interviews that. So I always think about the the questions that animate my conversations and our project are the enduring human questions. Um, what does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? And those questions have been very deeply cultivated inside our religious and spiritual traditions, but they are also universal human questions. And the way I think about the Civil Conversations Project is, is it's, it's, it's our content that just that much more intentionally asks the who will we be to each other question. And we're, we're, also, we're now getting ready to expand that. I, actually, tonight, because I, I can't see anything here, but um, Lucas Johnson, who's our new director of Civil Conversations Project, is here. Great. And we're getting ready to really be on an adventure with this and we're in discernment and just um the the ground yeah so the grounding virtues was as we in the last few years thought about what we might do beyond the radio show um we started thinking about the the better conversations guide and i don't know somebody was asking me the other day how i i don't remember anymore how the gr- virtues got formulated. It almost, it just feels to me like they presented themselves. And I mean, that's not true. Like I remember writing them, but I don't, <laughs> but I don't remember the exact process by which I said that the, and so we have six and 
and I really think they're the grounding virtues of the whole of on being as well, because it's really what showed itself. But yeah, so generally, I think when we do the way we do dialogue or speaking cross difference, we might have ground rules, and I think the the grounding virtues are about you know they are they are spiritual and social technologies. They are ways we have we have learned humans to invite our best selves into a room and invite others to bring their best selves into it. This is not work we do all that much right now in public. Mm-mm. And like, you know, really, and it, so it sounds so simple. And, and it is, in a way, I mean, I think these are social arts. I think we know how to do these things in our bodies, but these are withered muscles. Mm-hmm. And so we have to flex them again. And so there was this need to name these things. And one of them is um, hospitality. I think hospitality is absolutely a core virtue of on being. I try to create a hospitable space at the beginning of a conversation. And, you know, hospitality manifests before words are spoken. And, and, and it's, a, it's, an, it's an intellectually hospitable space, right, as well as a pleasant space to be in. Um, I've actually been having some – I've been out at Stanford for eight weeks, and I've been also having some conversations – in the valley, as they say. <laughs> I've learned to talk like this. Um, <laughs> in the valley. Um, and so I've been, like, I was, I've been out at, at some of the tech companies, and, and I didn't expect to be talking about this, but I started talking about how, you know, in analog life, we do have these social technologies for creating a human, humane space where it's more possible that good things will happen than that bad things will happen, right? And that's different from, like, opening up a vacant lot mm-hmm. and inviting everybody in and anything can happen and anything will happen. And the Internet was kind of created like a vacant lot because there wasn't this intentionality about what human beings are going to do here and how they're going to treat each other and we in fact are leading our lives on these platforms we are hanging out there we're falling in love there right we're fighting there um we're spending money there we're learning there um so yeah so that so this process of the grounding virtues is just like what are these what are these core practices and and then and then there is something kind of simple about so we kind of lay them out and define them and it's generous listening. Sometimes you have to put adjectives to things because we've used these words too often and we think we know what they mean and we don't. And so adventurous civility, um, hospitality, humility, which is a really ruined word, but it's really not about, it's really not about making yourself small. It's about Inviting others to be big. I love that. It's about being willing to be surprised in a good way by others. The thing is also, I guess the point of virtues as opposed to rules is this work of being present to each other and present to our world and being of service um, and being engaged in repair and building what we want to build um, 
even as we may fight what we need to fight. This is not just external work. It's inner work. And the civil rights leaders knew this. We've forgotten that whole piece of their legacy. Um, so that, yeah, so that, that's what that's about. And I think, like, that's what on being is about. And I think this is what we're all longing for, is to join inner life with outer presence in the world and be whole people. I also think, you know, one thing that listening to your work, yeah, exactly. One thing that listening to all of the interviews sort of adds up to, too, and one thing that you write about in the materials around the Civil Conversation Project is this idea, too, that, you know, we're all taught to be advocates for, yeah. for what we believe in. Yeah. But that sometimes that that can be a barrier to actual listening. I'm so guilty of that. Yeah. You know, I feel like sometimes a conversation with somebody who doesn't agree with me is just an opportunity to try and change their mind, mm-hmm. right? Because every, all of these issues feel so urgent right now, and the stakes feel so high. Yes, and it's just so hard to know what to do. That I, if I, you know, speak to somebody who ha- who is, I'll just say it, a Republican, and <laughs> I, you know, I feel yeah. like I have like eight minutes, right? And it, in, if I'm lucky to be able to convince them to my side. You know, I I haven't heard anything that they've actually told me. And, you know, I think, you know, one thing that you've said is that it should not be about getting someone on this. A conversation should not be about two people trying to get on the same page, that we've lost something. And I, I just, I, I want everyone here to just carry that out into the world. We need that so much right now. Well, um, yeah, there's a lot in there. Um, I bet. <laughs> supposed to be I, an interview. I, I bet that you, that there's some Republican in your life who you really like. Oh, yeah. Love. Tons. I spent a lot of time in Alaska. It's been the best thing. Okay. I like. Yeah. Well, so, so that's the thing. We've, so one of the things we know about how our brains work is that we imagine in the other group, whatever the other is, the other side, we imagine a homogeneity that is not, we know not to be there in our own lives. Yeah. In the spectrum of people we love and like, our extended circles of friends, our families. I mean, everybody has their, I feel like since 2016, everybody has like either a brother-in-law or a cousin story. Totally. Right? <laughs> um, and, but we stay in relationship. We actually have really sophisticated intelligence in our personal lives about being in relationship with a spectrum of people from they are my soulmate, we see everything the same, which is very rare, to they drive me crazy, but I love them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes loving them means um, I know what I'm not going to talk about with them, or I'm not going to talk about it now. Um... And yeah, so the the problem with being, it's just, the thing is the stakes are high right now, right? The difference is the things that divide us are serious. And so it's not a, but what I don't, we don't have to make a choice between that being true and also being discerning about times and experiences and people with whom a whole other set of skills might actually bring us to a place we don't think like might I think we want to create more and more spaces where what 
divides us doesn't define what is possible between us. And that means, yeah, that we need to be have more than one key that we can operate in. And so, yes, there is a place for advocacy, and there's a place for knowing how to make an argument. And there's a place for, there is a place sometimes for shutting someone down who's being inflammatory. But that's actually not what's called for a lot of the time. We also need to be able to shift in. And it, these are also withered muscles. Um, yeah, I mean, what it, but also, like, I don't think we've done listening well in this country for a long time. I mean, I think what I learned listening is, is that I should be quiet while other people talk so that they say what they have to say so I can, it's time for me to say what I have to say. Yeah. Totally. And now what I think about listening is that it's really not primarily about being quiet. That quiet is a side effect of what listening is, which is being really present. Really taking in this other human being. Mustering in yourself, and that can be hard these days, this is, this is what I mean, inner work. Deciding to be curious, really being curious, like really wanting to know something you don't know. Re truly being willing for them to surprise you. You can't fake that, too. You can't fake it. We, at an animal level, approach each other, and if you're with somebody and they're pretending to be curious, you know it, and you will, you will have your guard up. Mm -hmm. So that's why, the inner work. So if you really want to make something possible with somebody who may be a Republican, but could be like that person you love, rather than the worst Republican you saw on TV. Um, <laughs> right? Totally. If there's that opportunity, um, then you do whatever you need to do um, inside yourself. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to want to know. I interviewed Arlie Hochschild uh, from Berkeley, I don't know, a couple months ago. I don't know when. Last year. Um, <laughs> And she had this great line, because she spent all this time in Tea Party country, as it was called then. It was, and her book came out right, um, right before the 2016 election. And she said, you know, caring is not capitulating. And decide, being curious about somebody who you may profoundly disagree with, but who's not dangerous, um, is not compromising the ground you stand on. It's just deciding to learn something. And to be present to them as a human being and to invite them to be present to you as a human being and see what happens. Yeah, you're not giving your power over by listening. You're not. But it, sometimes in the moment it feels scary. Yeah. Well, especially the way we've set up. I mean, all these spaces we walk into. This is why there's this work now of, of creating spaces. And it can be a room and it can be digital and it can be, it can be a momentary encounter. Mm -hmm. But we do kind of have to disarm the ways we now are primed to meet other people. Yeah, I think what you said too about our, our digital world where we now spend so much time, you know, I feel like we invented something to avoid the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then as you said, now we're using it to fall in love and to buy food and to communicate and to do our jobs, and we're retroactively trying to create a moral universe on yeah. top of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think, honestly... 
your world is is the center point of that on the on the internet um you know and it may be oh, our work <laughs> it's just true i mean i don't know where else you go otherwise you know everything is like fairly disconnected we can find essays here and there we can find you know the new york times well column or so right i mean right. you know it's all in the service of of how to usually um and not in the service of conversation for mystery's sake or for curiosity's sake um i'm I'm curious because you are always so calm and uh, so put together <laughs> on air and also sitting here. Yeah. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, how did you come to your on-air persona? Or is that just your personality? Are you this sort of placid well, all the it, time? I'm not pretending. Yeah. <laughs> I, this is, I, am, I am truly being myself right now, but I have other modes. Okay. So I used to think it was hilarious, I mean, especially when my kids were living at home and they're, they're grown now. I didn't kick them out. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, uh, people would say, oh, you're so serene. And I just felt like saying, oh, you should say that to my teenager and they'll tell you that I yell. Uh, yeah. I, what do they think about also, this? Oh, they're, they have a real boundary between okay. their mother and Krista Tippett. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do they listen to the... No. Uh, they don't. I don't know. No, of course they don't. No. <laughs> I mean, if they do, they do it in private. They don't tell me about it. <laughs> they never talk to you about it? They're no. older now, right? Well, how, how old are I'm, they? They're 20 and 25. Okay. I think my daughter confessed that she had listened to something, but <laughs> as far as it got... <laughs> Oh my God! I don't yeah. have kids, but it must be such a humbling, deeply, deeply oh, humbling so, experience. It's so, they are there to make you humble. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah, uh, I do wonder. You know, I'm curious. Be, are uh, I don't know how to say this nicely. Clearly, you're not annoying, but um, you have so much wisdom. And you must have, because you have been a sponge for all of these conversations, like, are you someone, like, with your friends that, like, always has the perfect, like, well, Ellie Wiesel would have said. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, the thing about, so I felt like when I wrote the Becoming Wise book. Uh-huh. Which you, you are not, you are so humble in this book. This well, is a beautiful book. I'm sure it's for sale after. But the becoming, but the becoming word is as important as the wise word because it's not a destination. Awesome. It's, and so I don't know, do I feel like I'm really wise? I, I've lived a while now. I mean, I'm wiser. I get, I'm getting wiser, but it's just, it's not a, it's not a thing you possess, right? It's, um, and I'm, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, Yeah. I don't know. I do. I definitely do carry around a lot of voices in my head. Actually, when I, just a few years after I started doing the show, somebody from my alumni magazine interviewed me, and I said something like, uh, I mean, I didn't say it exactly this way, but this is what the quote was. I hear all these voices in my head. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, and this is is, just a stereotype of what people would think of a show about spirituality. (laughs) So amazing. I just feel like if I was you, I might become like such an annoying name dropper. You know, like, oh, I was on the phone with Brene Brown this morning, but then I was at Trader Joe's or whatever. But, Uh, you know, but so I don't know why this is. Something I think that helps me do the work I do 
is, um, is that I, I, I'm not impressed with, uh, with, with people's, with, you know, with the fame or the, even when that is deserved for the most noble reasons, I just know that everybody is a person and that's how I meet them. And I don't know, it seems odd to me because I grew up in this small, because I'm basically this girl from a small town in Oklahoma forever. And, um, I don't, so I, you would think that I might have the opposite effect, but somehow I just at some point realize that this is true. And it, mm-hmm. however powerful someone is, how, what their, whatever their credentials are, they're just a human being trying to live a life. And it's true of me, and it's true of everyone I've interviewed. Um, I don't know, maybe with the exception of the Dalai Lama, but... <laughs> But how many of us get to meditate for four hours a day before <laughs> <Yeah>. breakfast? It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. What? What? When I say, or when you hear the word wisdom, what? What do you picture? So, I wrote the book without ever defining wisdom. In a, in a way, the book is a is a long reflection on it. But here's the definition, because then I realized after with the bias, people kept asking, what's your definition of wisdom? Well, I hadn't thought about that. Um, so here's the definition I came up with. Um, I think something like knowledge or accomplishment um, or possessions, right? You can point, you can, you can, you, you can, you can have a contained understanding of, 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 of a person being knowledgeable or accomplished. And wisdom can coincide with knowledge and accomplishment. But I think the measure of a wise life is the imprint it makes on other lives around it. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and we can all, I mean, I just, you know, challenge you to think of the wisest person you've known, the wise, and what you will think of is how their life radiated out. Also, they will probably have a smile on their face. Mm-hmm. And, they, and it's not because they haven't had a lot of hardness, right? Like the wisest people are, they, it's, it's, it's walking, it's taking whatever life brings to you and integrating losses and wounds and imperfections into your wholeness on the other side. Yeah. True. I, do you think that it is possible to gain, I don't know, that you get it. Do you think that it is possible to be a wise person without suffering? I mean, I I find, like, retroactively, like, all the people I love most in my life, I yeah. usually befriend them, and then I find out, like, five or six months later, we have matching tragedies of some, yeah. some sort. It's almost like a filter I have in the world. I'm not even attracted to people. Into my, and, I, and I don't know it. Um, you know, what, what is that thing? And, and how how can we be... How can we become better versions of ourselves even without like the horrific things happening? I, not even I think that is I think that's the question for the twenty first century. God. I do, because I don't know what the answer is, but it is one of the strangest things about the human species that individually and collectively we often have to hit bottom. We have to be broken open. Before we find ourselves, right? We, we, 
I mean, it's both good. It's it's both good and bad, right? I mean, it's it's, it's terrible, and then it's miraculous that it's it's walking through things we don't know how we'll survive that deepen us, that force us to ask the hardest questions. I, you know, I went through a really major depression in my mid-30s, and I, um, it's, it's actually kind of shocking to me, because I, I, I couldn't have felt this for years at the time, but it's shocking to me now that I feel like if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't be who I am, and I, and I couldn't do what I do, because I, I had to learn... Well, I didn't have to, right? I could have, I could have done it another way. But, but what I, I, I took it as a moment to learn so much about myself and to tell all these truths about what I'd been through and how I, you know, how I made my way through life in a way that was really hard on me and occasionally hard on other people too. Um, I mean, there was so much richness in this, in this worst in this darkest, darkest place of my experience. And that's, that is a common human story. And what you're saying, you know, the truth is, who is this? There's this saying, um, who I think we don't know who said it, Solon or somebody like that. Be be kind, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, especially in this culture, we do not carry those battles on our sleeves. Mm -hmm. We hide them where possible. So you discover yeah. when you get to know somebody, their suffering, their wounds, but everybody has them. It, it is actually the thing that, one of the big things we have in common. Yeah. But I'm, yeah, oh, the, to the 21st century. It's time to quote you to you. To the, <laughs> Hold to on. the 21st century. Exactly. This mystery. Um, if we don't, let me just finish it. If yeah. we, I think, what a great adventure to figure out, and I actually think we're having some tools for this because we're getting in our brains. How could we evolve, and I mean evolve spiritually, intellectually, so that we find it in ourselves to rise to these heroic heights and to learn deeply who we are without having to collapse first? Yeah. I'm skulking about the Stanford Hospital right now, and my current work is a lot about terminal illness and I have a good friend dying and I just, I spend all my time wondering like how I can get the wisdom of a terminal diagnosis without the terminal diagnosis. Yeah. Right? Like yes. if, if somehow like we could finally internalize that we're yes. all dying all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, with still having a, a few years yeah. left, even just a few years of that like yeah. crazy acute mortality. That's it. That's well, it. Like, I know it's just so hard to live mm-hmm. there. Um, it's actually hard. So I think we should all put our heads together on this. Yeah, I mean, we do have a terminal disease. We just, we just try not to pay attention. Um, I want to talk about love. Speaking of tragedies, <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I personally hate falling in love. Um, just no offense, Josh. Um, I do because to me, it's so bound up in loss and to fall in love means that there is an inevitable loss. Either you're going to die or they're going to die or somebody's going to fall for somebody else or God knows all the million ways that we can lose. And they're going to disappoint you. They will disappoint you. Yes. 
like, that's the only thing that we can be sure of, right? And you're... <laughs> I'm not as cynical as I sound. Uh, I, I wanted to read this bit. This brought me so, so much peace. Um, is it okay if I read a little yes. bit of a book? Okay. <laughs> Um, when my marriage ended, I walked into a parallel universe that had been there all along. I became one of the modern multitudes of walking wounded in the wreckage of long-term love. Strangers of all on this planet is the way we can, strangest of all on this planet is the way we continue to idealize romantic love and crave it for completion, to follow those love songs and those movies. After my divorce, I created a welcoming home and took great delight in my children. I cooked dinner for gatherings of friends, old and new, invested in beautiful, far-flung friendships, and drew vast sustenance from webs of care through the work I do. Yet I told myself for years that I had a hole in my life where love should be. This is the opposite of a healing story. It's a story that perceives scarcity in the midst of abundance. I have love in my life, many forms of loving. As I settled into singleness, I grew saner, kinder, more generous, more loving in untheatrical, everyday ways. I can't name the day when I suddenly realized that the lack of love in my life was not a reality, but a poverty of imagination and a carelessly narrow use of an essential word. Hmm. I just... <laughs> <laughs> It makes me cry. It's so beautiful. And I just, I wish I'd had you for like a whole decade. <laughs> like, that, like was, that should have been in my wallet. You know, when I started writing that, I knew that the love chapter had to be in the middle. And, and I wanted to say this, that we, we've turned something so elemental and extravagant both it's both elemental and extravagant into this just putting these tiny little boxes where it's falling in love and falling out of love and romance and yeah. and it has so many forms but i but i kept write i kept trying to write the chapter and it was really abstract it felt preachy and <laughs> it couldn't it couldn't make it go anywhere so then then I actually went back to the actually the root question behind the question of what is the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, which was a some Benedictine monks who I got to know in Minnesota who would have these amazing world you know revolutionary within the context they were in uh, conversations across religious difference, and they would start with a big theological question that divided and you know that in religious terms people had killed each other over for centuries over their disagreements about these things and they would take a big religious question and then they'd say to everybody answer the question through the story of your life mm -hmm. and then they had five days to do that work wow so and so so when i was i can't do love i can't i can't do this and my, and so then i thought so then i started the chapter in this extravagant way and then i said okay i'm going to i'm going to put myself through the paces so i said what is love answer the question through the story of your life and then i discovered so much i just i think you make us so much less lonely mm. yeah well <laughs> i do <laughs> Um, and I, I think it's time for audience questions. 
Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, was there a particular conversation or moment in a conversation that created a dramatic shift for you in terms of your own thinking or spiritual life? Oh, I think there have been so many. For some reason, maybe just because of what we were just talking about, I'm thinking of um, a conversation that was long ago, but but we just kind of took it out of the attic and made it new, which was the conversation with Rachel and Naomi Remen. Oh, yeah. That was great. About, you know, the difference between healing and curing. Yeah. And that was really early on. And really early on, which was 15 years ago, I was still somebody who... Dis- I experienced myself, although I really did well getting past that, my depression, I, I, was, I think when you have an experience like that, you, you always know that's a place you could go back to. It's a place that exists in the known universe. And I don't know, that conversation with her about how our losses help us to live. Uh, This is this strange thing we were talking about about a minute ago. And really kind of owning that as there is nothing like touchy-feely, new-agey. That is a reality. It's an embodied reality. And claiming that, I think was really important for me ever after. But I've had, I've had just had so many. And then I, I just lead my own messy human life. But, but I, I, you know, I work, I don't know, honestly, if I work differently with what I hear in the show with what you hear in the show, right? I mean, I think I, I take things in and, and, and they work their way into whatever is happening for me. Um, have you ever struggled with meaninglessness yourself, especially as it relates to the trivialities of day-to-day life? How do you deal with this? <laughs> this person well, has to go to Trader I'm Joseph very grateful for the invention of good television. Mm-hmm. What are you watching? I, Tell us what you're watching. Oh, I watch it all. Um, <laughs> I just finished the latest season of True Detective, Ooh. which is really good. Great. What else did I just finish? Um, I just finished something else, which was excellent. Uh, Yeah, so actually I don't think... I mean, yeah, there's a lot of triviality. And that's also what days are made of. I... I, You know, sometimes I... When I'm standing in line, let's say at Chipotle... (laughs) <laughs> well, just my, my last memory of this was at Chipotle. And there's a long line, and we're all on our phones. And I'm thinking that for most of my life, we didn't have phones. And I'm literally trying to remember, what did we do? Yeah. Yeah, just standing there. Because we were standing in line, and it took as long as it took to get to the front. Yeah. Um, so the only thing I worry, so I think there's so much that's banal and, you know, boring. I mean, everything is not packed with meaning and, you know, it's not true for me. It's not true for you. Um, but I, I do think the danger now is that we've, 
uh, I, and I even feel this when I go to down that rabbit hole of just looking things up on the internet. You know, that's not a good use of meaningless time. Mm-hmm. But we do. You know, boredom is actually creative, and sleep is actually healing. And I, I and I, I know that partly because I, in my job, I do so much deep thinking. I actually really like. Um, I, I need. I need. An, I need novels and TV shows that take my brain away. And I really do not like true crime. I mean, I, it really disturbs me. But just about everything I watch is a murder mystery. I'm with you. I just. I think my favorite line in the book is, "I I want to live in a world free of murder, but not free of murder mysteries." <laughs> and no one ever quotes that line. <laughs> You're right. It is not the here, but you probably didn't mark it. <laughs> Amazing. Um, why do people self-sabotage themselves, and what guidance can you offer for people who repeat negative loops in their lives? Well, we all do, so don't feel alone. We we do do have tools now. We do... um, I mean, our brains do that. Um, And I don't... And I I think part of the way we sabotage ourselves at getting out out of that self-sabotage is thinking that it should be quick, right? That you find something to do and that you will take care of it. The the great... I I think that neuroplasticity, the, the science of neuroplasticity, this discovery that our brains change across the lifespan which i don't know maybe that doesn't seem so amazing to people now but 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 when i was growing up and i mean until and this is a very new development we thought that your you know your brain stops developing and you you are who you are and it's stuck and it's fixed when you're 12 or 18 or you know maybe 25 and we know that's not true and we know that we have power through our behavior to change our brains, and even to have to, to, to with genetic effect. One of the things about um, so you know the what we practice, we become, which we know about learning to play a sport or getting better at yoga, uh, or you know any number of skills. So what I think is so exciting about what we're learning about ourselves is that we can also change whether we move through the world as a generous, kind, patient person. And so kind of the thing about the virtues is thinking of these, thinking of qualities of character that you would like to possess as muscles you can flex. And and I, I mean, I have actually practiced this. I had a really, really dramatically tough time in the place I was that the show was previously based for years. And I realized that though that my just being angry and fighting all the time um, wasn't achieving anything and it was making me feel worse. Um, and, but, so I th- but I think part of the key, the key here is don't decide that you're going to be all of, like, I'm going to be generous and kind and patient and humble. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually, one. right, really choose one. So, so I was like, this is actually doable. So whatever those, whatever those repetitive loops are, 
Also, therapy is a good idea. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so I'm not saying, don't rule that out. But, um, but try this. Decide a quality of character. And I also think the other thing we do is that we think that you're born to be like this. Like some people are just more hospitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that may be true that there, that there's, there are inclinations, but I would say choose a quality of character and practice it. And which means you will not do it well at first. You will have to remind yourself. You'll forget multiple times a day. But as you remember, this is, this is how I want to turn up in this moment. It, it, does, it won't feel natural or instinctive, but you can practice it, and this is the beautiful thing. It will start to feel instinctive. Awesome. I love that. So and also much. therapy. Great. <laughs> um, oh, this is great. I wanted to hear this, too. Can you talk about poetry um, and oh. how it's informed the show? Yeah. So, you know, we, I, I do have to put in a plug for the... For our beautiful new digital home, which oh, is yeah. which is God, not a beautiful. website, it's it's a whole new experience, and we want to build on that experience. And one of the things we had to do to create it, because we had to get rid of the chronology, it's not like last week's show, this week's show, next week's show, it's all the different ways people might come to, to, to use our content, um, or to whatever you want to learn, or whatever kind of day you're having. But we had to go through the entire archive from the very beginning. We had to sit in a room and go through every single show. It's this trip down memory lane. And um, one of the fascinating things about that was how themes of the show have, mm. have evolved and how there were things that we did a lot of in the beginning and really don't do much of now. And then suddenly something would rise up that feels so completely... Uh, elemental to me now that we do this, like so central, but we didn't. And poetry was one of those. Suddenly, suddenly poetry is there. And suddenly poetry is everywhere. And it's absolutely at the heart of what we do. Um, I just, we went to the Geraldine R. Dodge Poetry Festival this year. I don't think we've aired, I did three interviews in three days on stage, and it was just so amazing. Um, and Sharon Olds is coming up. Does anybody know Sharon Olds? Yes, awesome. Okay. I just have to say, the top of that show, you have to play it when it comes up in your podcast feed. Because she uses all these words, which are body parts. Oh, great. <laughs> like penis and hymen. She says, odes, ode to the hymen. Ode to the tampon. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and mostly you can't say them on public radio. <laughs> so we decided to bleep them all out at the top of the show, and it's hilarious. Um, but anyway, it's really wonderful. Um, poetry uh, is, so what I think, but so what I realize over time is it's not about poetry. That's not why we keep talking to poets. It's about the place in us that poetry comes from, and what poetry gives voice to in human experience. And I also think, I know that poetry always rises up in societies in crisis when official forms of language and discourse have failed us. And when we are alienated from each other and ourselves 
and need to find and and don't know how to get back mm. until we find a place in ourselves that is deeper than than all of this and poetry does that and so i it to me it is absolutely like it i i am totally understand why there's more poetry being downloaded off the internet and read and there are festivals and you know maria popova has this universe in verse and um and poetry is at the heart of on being mm-hmm. it's just a, it's a moment we live in yeah. Ah, what's your what are your favorite podcast shows um oh oh well okay i may disappoint you all um because <laughs> i think my i listen to a lot of bbc podcasts not the world service but bbc radio 4 oh, i love bbc radio 4 you, which yeah which I, I radio 4 i was living in england for a little while and that's really when I fell in love with radio. And it was really Radio 4, which is the internal BBC, which is kind of like their NPR, but I'm sorry, it's a lot better. Oh, so good. It's a lot better. And um, so the other thing is that so many, if I listen to podcasts, to public radio, other public radio podcasts, I kind of feel like I'm at work. Mm-hmm. And... So I listen to, and I listen, so also they have fantastic science podcasts. So I listen, okay, they all have awful names because it's the BBC. They don't have to sell anything. So the, <laughs> the names are so boring. In, um, Inside Science, it's a great one. <laughs> also, the food program. <laughs> it's, it is phenomenal. It's not, it's actually what I just said about poetry as a lens through, to, uh, poetry as a lens to life. This program is about food as a lens to life. Awesome. Um, there's one called Discovery. That's a little more, little more enticing. Um, okay. Does anybody know the Archers? This is this 75 year old, uh, rural soap opera that's on Radio 4 twice a day for 13 minutes. Oh, I've heard it. That's what I fall asleep to at night. Oh, awesome. (laughs) Um, Oh, great. What are your views on death, and how has your life experience influenced how you relate to death? Just a light little question. Yeah, there's a light question. Well... It's, I mean, it's just, what did you say a minute ago about, you said about your being, being in the hospital and if we could only all know we were going to die, mm-hmm. which in fact we are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the only thing that is true of every human being who has ever lived, that they were born and they died. But... Because we're so, um, yeah, just because we ward off. We also, in this culture, have thought of death as a failing, Mm -hmm. a failure. And medicine treated death as a failure until about 10 minutes ago. Yeah, still does in some places. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the hospice movement is so new. So I feel like that's really a frontier and I think there may be somebody here tonight from the dinner party, which is this, mm. there's, there's this whole, uh, I don't know if you want to call it movement, because I think 
I think movements are not going to be in this century what they were in the last century, but okay, we'll call it a movement. Um, there's this movement of people, often young people, often millennials, who are kind of insisting that we, that we, that we be reality-based about this. And because the problem about um, denying the fact that to be alive is a fatal condition, um, and also the fact that we don't, we're so, oh, you know, it's so hard for us to carry around. We, we don't actually let things like pain and loss or fear or vulnerability, we don't, we don't make room for those things to show. Uh, which means that we're not complete with each other. It means that our that our space, that our public space, our our life together is not complete. Um, and so, and honestly, I feel like if I feel like this is manifest in, in the dysfunction of our political life right now. If we had, if it was possible for people to to be grieving, to be terrified to be in pain they wouldn't always have to be to turn that into being angry mm. right because anger is the thing we do mm. and it's often a way we do those other things so somehow i think this reckoning with death this like just insistence that it happens and we're going to talk about it and we're going to be there for each other and we're not going to treat it as a failure but actually in in as it is strangely a, a an inextricable piece of vitality it's just one of these ways that we're um that we are trying to be more whole and i i think you know it will it will turn up i don't know in some by some squiggly line that movement will make our politics better i believe that I hope so. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Where are you now in terms of your inner world? What do you know to be true, in quotation marks, whether you're a millionaire or homeless? Ah. Uh. And that is our last question. I'm going to say. Oh, gosh, that's a hard one to be last. <laughs> that's really hard because... Because... And I don't, I'm not criticizing the question, but... Because but, um, it's very provocative. Um, but it, it does this thing we do where we, we try to... Um, we want to and and kind of set ourselves up to draw conclusions and make sense based on the most extreme uh, positions or or uh, situations and I think there probably are things that are that are uh, that are bedrock truths if you're homeless. But I don't feel like I could... I don't feel like it would be my place to assert what that is, right? But 
Could I ask you a uh, twist on that question? Yeah, ask me a twist. I'm curious, like, we all, whether we admit it or not, have like a personal mission statement, right? Uh -huh. That acts like some sort of interior yeah. compass. And I, yeah. to me, all of the work with On Being shows that kind of there is no, like, that, I'm not going to say that, that truth is subjective because I believe that they're in things called facts. Yeah. Um, but I also think that your whole project has been to complicate those yes. things. These, like, complicate is my favorite word, just about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I... I'm very formed by the time I spent in Divided Berlin. And I was working my last years there. I was chief aide to our ambassador to West Germany. I was working on nuclear arms control. I was, I was, I was the New York Times stringer there. All of that stuff is less glamorous than it sounds because that's true of everything. Is, everything like that is much less glamorous than it sounds. But it sounds glamorous. And there were, you know, seconds there where it was glamorous. Um, but the reason I left that is because there was this, I was literally sitting around tables with people who were moving those missiles around on maps of Europe, people who had genuine, genuine power to actually destroy humanity or save it. But at the same time, I was experiencing this world of people on two sides of the Berlin Wall. And I saw, I did see this tr thing, which I think is true, that... Human beings create the they you we create meaning out of the raw materials of the lives we've been given, and I saw that it's possible. It was possible in West Berlin to have everything and have a really shallow life, and in East Berlin to have nothing mm -hmm. and create lives of dignity and beauty and intimacy. Um. So and so I I I I, I and I I yeah I, that we all have we work with what we're given, and and it's kind of miraculous the way human beings do that. Um, but the truth is that uh, I think that uh, that there are extreme situations, and being homeless could be one of them, and being a billionaire could be another. Where where you don't, where you, where you may not have access to that meaning-making, uh, basic work, um, for for completely opposite reasons. Um, but I, yeah, and it is, it is for me about complexity, and um, that, that I guess that, yeah, my mission statement. Um, it is about wanting us to really break out of these, you know, the binaries and the simplifications and the stereotypes and the caricatures and all the ways that we reduce um, ourselves and each other and in doing that, what is possible between us and what it's possible for us to create in terms of shared life and life together. And somehow that is all connected up with claiming how messy it is and working with that and somehow befriending that. Um, yeah, I don't know. That just, this is a huge question. <laughs> but I like a huge question. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> ha,
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your life's work. Thank you for all the shows we haven't listened to yet. <laughs> you are, uh, for many of us, our church. So I uh, thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> You're the best. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>